This is Anthony Arino, and you're listening to In the Arena. There is no more difficult role in any company than the first-line sales manager. No one is more accountable for the results of increased revenue, increased profit, and the execution of the company's strategy. It's no wonder that the average tenure of a sales manager is something like 18 months. My good friend Mike Weinberg's new book, Sales Management Simplified, The Straight Truth About Getting Exceptional Results from Your Sales Team is out and on shelves now. In the book, Mike identifies the issues and challenges and mistakes that make producing sales results difficult or impossible for sales managers. In 16 tight chapters, he lays out all the arguments with all the challenges, and in 10 chapters, he gives you the solution for producing those results now. I asked Mike some questions about the role of firefighter as a sales manager, dealing with senior leadership who have what we'll call sales egos and the importance of coaching the sales force. Welcome, Mike Weinberg, back in the arena. Mike Weinberg, how are you? Anthony, thank you for having me. Great to be here. It's about time. It's taken a long time. So I'm holding in my hand a copy of Sales Management Simplified, The Straight Truth About Getting Exceptional Results from Your Sales Team by one Mike Weinberg. And then at the bottom, it's got sort of a typo. It says, Forward by Jeb Blunt, CEO of Sales Gravy and author of People Follow You. And I was looking for like the epilogue that I wrote or, or something, but I, I got nothing. I mean, I'm not, I got nothing on here. Oh, yeah, well, I do. Just in the back. I have a quote, right? You have a great quote. In fact, your quote was so good, I had to pull out a dictionary to, uh, to define one of the words. But listen, <laughs> you've taken all the credit, rightly so, for the success of my first bestseller. I thought we just had to, you know, share the wealth and let someone else take the credit for this one. So it's it's funny because fanatical prospecting, uh, Jeb's book comes out. I think this week. Yeah, this week. This week. Um, yeah. Who wrote the forward for that one? I think I might have written that one. Yes, and then my book comes out in November. Seventeen Elements. And who wrote the forward? I'm thankful you let me write that one, and I can't <laughs> wait. You know, it's funny the timing, and I, I know it seems like a, a silly little club or something, but I these books are the books. I mean, I've wanted Jeb's book forever. You know, you and I talk prospecting more than anybody probably. Yeah. And to have a full book written by a pro on that topic, you know, to tell, I, I've wanted something to point people to forever. And that book, I mean, he leaves no stone unturned and there's no excuse. If you, uh, if people are short on, on creating appointments and opportunities, that is the answer. So I can't wait to use that as a resource. And it's- your book... You know, I don't want to steal your thunder, but people needed to hear the holistic view on sales and who wins and who doesn't. And I, I love that you did the instead of doing the easy book, you kind of did the hard book. And I well, I'm sure that'll be another topic for another day, but I can't wait to get your book out as well. Yeah, it's on its way. I got a yeah. little bit more of uh, editing work to do just with uh, the acknowledgments. And I've got a list of reading. Of course, your books are in the list of reading in there, of course. 
along with Jeb's. And, you know, I just got back from Atlanta. I worked with Jeb and we're going to be working with him next month in November. And uh, he was just a ball. We had a great time. We did a, a keynote together at the end and we, we told these great, amazing stories. And we had about half the audience crying and had people walk up at the end and say, you bastards made me cry. It was uh, it was a wonderful time. That's awesome. Yeah, I do. I'm, I'm really excited for our November uh, event with the customer acquisition symposium in in DC. I to get to get these six guys together at one time, focused all about acquiring new customers, uh, and and just the breadth of uh, of angles. You know, the versatility among the six of us. That is one one heck of an event. So I can't wait to be with you guys live. It's going to be awesome. And in the video I just shot, I talked about you and me and just how we're very, very different and just how much people love your style. I mean, doing the two-day workshop with you, you just have such great delivery. People are going to fall in love with you. All right. I appreciate your inflated view of me. Move on. (laughs) Let's talk about Sales Management Simplified. I'm holding the book in front of me. And it's a for me, it's a really interesting book because what you did is you took a whole bunch of big problems that people have and you just dealt with each and every one of them. Uh, 26 chapters they're all really tight but they get straight to the heart of the issue and i i pulled out a couple that i i want to talk about and that they're what i see happen more than offer uh, more more often than not these are the things that cause people big problems let me deal with just a couple of them chapter seven sales suffer when the manager wears the fire chief's helmet tell people what the fire chief helmet is and, and tell them what, what the evidence of that looks like. How do we know that? And what's it doing to the sales force? Yeah. All right. Well, first of all, I love that you picked that one. You're the first person to ask me about that chapter. Uh, at this point, I, sales managers tend to be problem solvers, right? Sales leaders, they want to solve problems. And particularly in smaller and mid-sized companies, I see this trend where the sales manager is very quick to grab the fire hose and try to put out every fire in the company because they, they feel responsible. And if it has anything to do with sales at all, they're going to jump in and solve the problem. And sometimes, even when it has nothing to do with sales, it's a quality issue in the plant, right? It's some kind of engineering problem-solving thing or a delivery issue. The sales manager is jumping in, and they are they're trading what I, what I like to call their battle chief's helmet, right? Your sales leader is the most important lever in the organization to drive sales performance because this is the person who's multiplying him or herself into the people, right, and leading the troops into battle. And I think it's very dangerous when that person takes off the battle helmet and puts on the fire helmet, grabs the fire hose and tries to do everything else in the company in the name of being a good corporate citizen and helping out folks. I would argue the world works a lot better when everyone focuses on their day job and if the, and if if the sales manager is really the key lever, right, to drive sales performance, then the last thing I want that person doing is is getting distracted and try to help out everybody else. And I'll, I'll just add one more thought. And I see this, Anthony, like in in smaller companies, you know, fifty million dollars ish and below, or when that's like a when there's a division of a larger company, when um, very often, like at a branch, for example, uh, the same person is like a general manager, and they're in charge of sales and the operation. And when I see that happen, I almost never, never, never observe that person uh, default to leading the sales team because the operational issues on their plate are more urgent 
Uh, they're more pressing. They're right in their face. So if there's ever a conflict with sales and ops or there's challenges in both, they always tackle the operational issues first. And they don't even think about the sales stuff until the end of the month or the end of the quarter when they see the bad results. So, you know, I, I just get nervous when the sales leader is not focused on driving sales and leading the team. That's because they never run out of operational issues. I mean, those will never, ever come to an end where you'll go, we have all the operational issues solved. It's a daily thing. And, you know, I built a decent-sized business uh, myself, and one of the things that I did that, that helped me be able to do that was to separate the sales leader's role from operations. And literally, we drew a line, and if you were in sales, you were not allowed to do operational work. And if you were in operations, you were not allowed to sell and we never mixed those. And I think that that's something that people, they underestimate how much operational work there is. And it will just continue to expand to fill up a sales leader's entire week. And and then they're really not a sales leader anymore. So Totally, Anthony. That's totally. And then you live, you end up getting out of proactive mode. And, and then the sales leader just lives in a reactive mode. And you know what happens? It gets dangerous because then there's this tendency where we let the salespeople take their foot off the gas, right? Because we start feeling bad for the operations folks, or if the same guy's in charge of both, like he, you know, you realize you've you've outsold, which is a, a beautiful thing for what for what you do and what I do. When we get the monkey to shift, and you, in fact, you and I share a client where we've helped them do that, where the monkey has clearly shifted from the backs of the salespeople to where we've overstuffed the pipeline with incredible opportunities, and now the company is, you know panicking because they can't support all the work that's coming in. That's a great problem. And my old business partner used to say this. Our job is not to worry about operations. In fact, I quoted him in the book. I said, our job is to bury the bastards. Yeah. You know, Don't ever feel bad for those people that they're working so hard or they can't keep up with you. Because the moment you take your foot off the gas, you lose momentum. You know, The engine kind of gets out of the power band and, and you, it's very hard to get that back. It, it, I think it, it's uh... – it's like the momentum that it takes for a sales organization. You know, it's it's like on ice when your car's sliding. You can turn the wheel for a long time, but it takes a long time to grab. And then when it grabs, you're off. But you're right. You have to keep the foot down. And I, I think that that's a huge mistake. I'm glad that you put that one in here. It's one of my favorite ones. I think that you have to say you're going to serve one of these two masters, but you can't serve both. And if you lead the sales force, then lead the sales force. And the, you'll never run out of work over there either. There's tons of work to do. And the book is full of a bunch of things that you should be doing that you're not doing. Um, and let me move us to 14. I'm doing this in sevens, I guess, because I wanted to go to another one that I see as just being huge. And it's the lack of coaching and, and mentoring, specifically coaching. There's a lot of managing. And what I see, if I had to, well, I'll tell you a quick story. I had a client who, when I looked at their sales force, the sales managers were in just over 20 hours a week of meetings. And yeah. the sales force was in just over 11 hours a week of meetings, literally. They had overlay teams. This one had to talk to that one. They needed to have this meeting and that meeting. And it was weekly. And I asked them to just make one change. That change was um, one hour of meetings a week. One hour. That's all you're allowed to have. If you have an overlay team, get it done in that meeting. Whatever needs to be talked about, talked about. Because nothing got done. But the biggest gap was that the sales manager wasn't spending any time coaching the sales force. They weren't aware of the opportunities. They weren't able to help. So uh, tell me about the lack of coaching and mentoring and, and what that does to the sales force and the salespeople Oh my goodness. individually. Well, it's a huge topic. I mean, Before I even jump into that, I'll say I'm actually dealing right now with a client of mine on the East Coast, got a young stud sales manager just promoted from 
from the ranks and he is great, but he's working probably 70 hours a week. You know, he's got some new people working for him. He's drowning. Uh, no one in the job before him modeled it well. So he's making it up as he goes. And just like you do, I, I looked at his calendar and I looked at the number of meetings he had created for himself and that the company expected him to attend. And I'm like, dude, you're going to die. This is not a tenable situation. Like we can't live like this. If you have to go to all these meetings, and even some of those meetings were with his people, you can't you can't do all that because you're never going to get to your, your high-value activities. And one of your highest-value activities as a sales manager is your one-on-one -on -one meeting. And you and I can talk through what is coaching and what's not coaching, but um, I think there are really two kinds of one-on-one -on -one meetings. One is where you're doing accountability, and I think accountability is best done one-on-one, -on -one, not in a group session. And that's where we're, we're having a formal meeting one-on-one, -on -one, and we're going to review their results and the health of their pipeline, right? What are we adding to the pipeline and what are we moving through the pipeline? And then if the results aren't there and the pipeline's not there, we're going to dive into activity. So that's part one. But part two is where you want to go. And I love this topic. It's coaching. And what does that mean? You know, are you spending time with a person to understand what's going on in their world? What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? How do you build on their strengths? How do you cover for their weaknesses? Are you coaching them about themselves and how they approach their job? Are you getting in their car or in, if it's an inside sales team, in their cube and watching them work so you can offer feedback? What does a coach do? He watches, he works with the talent that he's got and he helps them, uh, gives them feedback and makes suggestions, usually by asking great questions more than by preaching. Um, and then the other whole piece of coaching, I think, is where you were also going is deal strategy, right? You know, two brains are better than one. Are we are we br letting people bring us problems and challenges and helping them diagnose them? Are we brainstorming on how to get into key prospects? Are we sitting down once we create an opportunity and it gets stuck? How do we meet more more stakeholders and build consensus and and attack it from different angles? I mean, are we doing pipeline reviews not just for the accountability part part of it, but for bringing some creativity and some ideas? So, I mean, coaching is huge, and I don't know what you find in your clients. But the common excuse I hear is, I don't have time for that. And I look back at the sales manager and I go, how could this is like buying a car and going, well, I'm going to skip the transmission. I really want the heated seats, but I don't really need gears. And I'm like, are you kidding? This is this is not optional. This isn't a nice to have. This is your job. I mean, what more important thing could you do than meet with your people one on one and either assess their performance or coach them to get better? Listen, no, no this is my opinion. This is what a coach does. A coach sees something in you that you don't yet recognize, and they help you cross that gap. They believe in you, and they can see something, better results that you may not be able to see. But nobody ever said, that, that I'm aware of, nobody ever said, I had the best manager. He totally neglected me and spent all his time in meetings. He was wonderful. He changed my life. Yeah. Nobody says that. It's the leader who cares enough to engage with you one-on-one -on -one and sits down and lets you know that this is what I believe you can be and I can see this and to help you figure out how do you get there. But Every great performer has a great coach. And I, I, I love that you threw this out here because I hear the same thing. I don't have time to coach. Actually, this, this is one thing that I think if I were to indict most sales organizations, they think that the sales manager is there to essentially deliver reports to them and tell the salespeople what they need from them. And that's not the job. You have to decide, again, whether you're going to serve your people or you're going to serve the organization first. If you serve your people first, the numbers come in and then the organization tends to leave you alone. 
if you serve the organization first, the numbers don't come in because you're ignoring the asset through which those results are produced. Oh my goodness. Preach it, brother. I mean, you're, you, I agree. You are spot on. And let, let's take it one step further. You know, we're, we're about the same age. Anthony, when I was young, and I think I probably had better mentors than you from the, from some of your funny stories I've heard about your early jobs in sales. Um, the sales manager took great pride in mentoring and coaching up new people to higher levels of performance. That was like the primary job. Like I had guys in my life that taught me crap. They, they mentored me, whether it was where to get your shoe shined. And at that point it was the incredible uh, shoe shine guys in the St. Louis airport. But when back in the TWA days, you know, you know, how do you pack a bag and how do you conduct a sales call and just coaching and mentoring. And part of what I, what I wanted to get to in that chapter was the point of, because sales managers are not coaching their people and they're living as desk jockeys and, and live, you know, managing by CRM screen. And as you said, dealing with telling salespeople what to do and then reporting crap back to the organization. One of the deadly consequences of that is we have these amateurish salespeople running around and the only people coaching them are you and me and a handful of our peers that get paid as outsiders. And that's not as effective as when the managers in their day-to-day coaching. So we have salespeople that can't conduct, I mean, they can't, they, they're really good at updating the CRM and really good at doing the administrative paperwork that they get killed. You know, the consequences, in fact, I've got clients like this, where the consequences for not updating the CRM are harsher than the consequences for missing your sales goal. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? So we have idiot managers who are living in management mode because that's the expectations put on them by their company. And I don't mean to belittle the manager. I think it's it's more of a systemic problem and no one mentored the manager how to lead. But we've got salespeople that can't make a phone call. They can't conduct a discovery sales conversation. They do pathetic demos and presentations. They don't know how to build consensus. They can't probe. They they you you know we see this every day, right? And why? Because no one's working with them. Because we yell at them through email and by CRM, and the manager's not modeling or going on the road and coaching them. And that's what we have today. And it's frankly, it's a crisis. I'm I'm going to move us into uh, what I think is one of the most interesting observations and one of the most interesting chapters. And I think it, it comes out of your experience and my experience and what we've seen. It's chapter twelve. The big ego senior executive quote sales expert often does more harm than good. Tell me about that person. And you, I, I'm, I'm uh, thinking back to you have a list of nine or ten faces that pop into your head when mm. you're thinking about this. Tell me about some of those faces. Who are these people? Mm. What are they yeah. doing? <laughs> yeah, and those nine or ten people aren't going to be too happy when they read the book because they're not, they're not named, but they're going to know it. You know, it's funny, Anthony, you bring that up. I, I got a note from a guy that we know in the, in the sales improvement world this weekend who's re- read the book and is going to do an interview with me. And and he, he says, you know, just for what it's worth, Mike, I don't know that I would have written your book in this order because the way you blasted people in, chat, in part one, I'm not sure, I'm not sure this is going to hurt your business, that people are going to be afraid to hire you as a consultant. And, you know, I, I had that fear, to be honest. And, I, and as I wrote part one of the book and I, I promised I was going to tell the straight truth, uh, that chapter particularly gave me some angst because I really did. I mean, I had the names of nine high ego uh supposed, you know, air quote, sales experts, CEOs in my mind that I was writing about. And they killed performance and they killed the morale of the sales team because they thought they were experts. And they did two things all the time. They always pontificated. They thought they knew everything about sales and they would tell everybody all the time what their job was. And then they micromanaged. And a lot of these guys were, uh, were founders, you know, that had, that saw themselves as sales experts. Many, and many of them also, uh, really had this weird habit that they 
they cared more about activity reports and knowing what their people were doing than they cared about sales results. It was a very bizarre controlling uh, dynamic, controlling a per, you know controlling personality that plays itself out from a founder entrepreneur who's now got a pretty big company but can't seem to let go and move on but, to some but level it, of profession. But isn't selling, but is no longer selling. No, he's not selling. He's CEO, but he can't let go. I mean, I sat with one CEO, and, and I won't name the city, but I mean, I went down there to to help him redesign some sales reports, and I mean, he grabbed the yellow legal pad and told me this is exactly what I want to see. You know, and I had another CEO last year. I had lunch with a guy. And I mean, this CEO is four or five layers removed from the, fails, the field salespeople now. There's a, got a GM under him and a VP of sales and then a sales manager. And this CEO was trying to argue with me that he needed to see the call reports from every salesperson because he had to know. He just had to know who they were calling on and how many calls they were making. And I looked at him right across the table. I said, let me draw this out for you. And I, I took a napkin and I drew out his hierarchical organization. And I said, you can't be asking the salespeople who they're calling on. Yes, you should look at the corporate sales report, and yes, for by all means, dig into the corporate pipeline to get a feel for, for opportunities that are being created and momentum. But when you start asking questions about sales activity and you're reading call reports at your level, I go, you're sending really weird messages to the sales team. You're telling them you don't trust them. You're telling them you don't trust the people managing them, and you're telling them that you're a control freak. And I got to tell you, that doesn't go over real well because part of part of being in sales is loving what you're doing and feel like you're helping the people around you win. And when you deflate the heart of the sales team by micromanagement and by pontificating and by creating this bizarre anti-sales culture where there's no trust, um, you got a problem and you're going to lose your top people fast because top producers don't put up with that kind of behavior from from executives. What, what's interesting to me about that, I think – you know, knowing entrepreneurs, they are the first salesperson when they start the business and mm-hmm. they've got the most passion. They've got the best story. They really believe and they just go out and hustle. And then they build, start building a team around them and they have a really tough time letting go. And they think that if everyone did what they did when they were $1 million, that that would be the right thing for everyone to do. But it's not, number one. And number two, they're not doing their job. And the reason that businesses tend to stall is that the CEO is really not doing the work of leading the organization. And they're not trusting the sales management that they put in place to lead the organization. And so I want to I speak to your um, – it's chapter 12 on, on page 73 of the book. I've got it right in front of me. I don't think it's going to hurt your business because I think that a lot of people recognize them themselves in this. And I think you're a straight shooter. And you have such a great delivery on things like this. You can laugh and it, it will be okay for people. But the fact of the matter is, if they're going to grow their organization, they have to get out of that role, they have to start leading, and they have to actually build an organization. Otherwise, their business stalls because they're not really building a sales organization. They're still trying to be this entrepreneur that they were at $1 million when they're at $50 million. And it's a very different business at that time. And businesses, they just go through a cycle and stages where the CEO can't do that work and there's more important work that they should be doing. Yeah, well, boy, I, it's a big deal. And I, since you brought up, let me just jump ahead. It's actually something I addressed in the very next chapter. Because you know, the, in, the, in the chapter on the high ego sales expert, I, I'm kind of making fun of the guys because this, this is kind of the weakness of the, that CEO. But what I find also is particularly with the, the visionary entrepreneur guy or gal, Sometimes their strength also gets in the way of sales success. And I, I don't know if you've seen this in some of your smaller clients. I have this happen to me a lot where the CEO, the founder, is so frustrated 
with the performance of his salespeople. And then when you kind of dig in and try to figure out what's really going on, a lot of it comes down to the fact that that very talented, I mean, uber talented, visionary, charismatic, superstar salesperson, founder, forgets that his or her people are not him, right? They, they, you, the people that are out selling for him now aren't as talented as he is. And they need clarity and they need direction. And I had, I had one CEO, in fact, I tell the story in the book, where he was pulling his hair out because his people couldn't figure out how to use smoke and mirrors to sell this vision of his, this vision of his. You know, it was a new product in a new industry to people that weren't ready to buy it. And he would tell me story after tour story how he had done this in his past. And finally, it, my, the penny just dropped for me and I look at him and I won't say his name, but I said, CEO, I go, do you get it? Your people aren't you. You're crazy talented. You're cocky. You can sell anything to anybody on the fly. But if we're going to get your people to perform, we got to give them a very clear strategy, uh, super um, precise direction about the markets we're going to attack. And we have to help them tell this story and structure sales calls because they can't pull off what you can pull off. And I think sometimes the really talented you know, executives forget that. You know, they operate on, on a different plane altogether, and they forget their people can't keep up with them. There are, the salesperson that's walking in also isn't the CEO of the company. I mean, they, they have a different title when they walk in. The CEO is getting a different response because of their title. I, I was in, um, I was in f uh, another country in Europe once with a, a sales leader, and he said, my salespeople suck, they don't know how to close, and they can't negotiate, and I'm going to fire them all and start over. And I said, what are we going to do when we get the third group? And he looked at me and said, I, I don't understand the question. I said, after we fire the first group and we replace them with the second group, what do we do when we get to the third group? And he said, you're saying it's not them. <laughs> and I said, I, I am. And he said, you're saying it's me. I said, well, it's you and the leadership team. And I mean, ultimately, only the leader can make the decisions to change oh. anything. Only the leader can do that. So you're not doing that and you're not giving the sales team what they need. So you're not getting this response. And he quickly and understood they, the point I was making is that when we treat the second group just like we treat the first group, he's going to hate them too. And really, he need to change and and look at himself. And I think that you do a really good job holding that mirror up. And thank you, a Anthony. Let me tell you. I mean, first of all, thank you. But what you just articulated in that great story—that's why I wrote the book. I I went into sales consulting the first time, you know, my first stint twelve years ago, naive, and I thought. If I coached up everybody to sell like me, and I used my little new sales driver framework, which is what made the, my first book, New Sales Simplified, so successful. If I used that framework and coached everybody, I could transform sales organizations. And I was naive. I was wrong. And over the years of doing it and then coming out and being a sales leader for several years and coming back into consulting my second time around, I learned the hard way. You don't transform anything from the bottom. And if you don't, so you can do all the training and coaching you want. If you don't address sales leadership and sales culture, nothing changes long term. We may help a few individuals sell more, but the reality is, as I've gone in company after company, the problem usually starts in the office of the person that engaged me. And while they're quick to point at the sales team, and yeah, the sales team has lots of opportunity to improve. Most of these big sales issues deal with sales leadership, sales culture, and sales talent management. And that's why I was so brutal in my approach to the book. And honestly, I, and I've, I think I've told you this before, I really didn't want to write this book. I got enough going on from the first book, but I felt compelled to share what I'm seeing in these companies because teaching people how to sell alone doesn't fix a sales organization. You got to deal with the leadership aspect.
When I was at Harvard Business School, there was uh, an Indian guy in my class, and we were in organizational development. In every answer to every question, in every case, he responded the same way, a fish rots from the head. And he yeah. said it so often, I got sick of him saying it, and I thought, that can't, that can't be the answer for everything. It, it can't be the leader. But now, you know, some time has passed, 15 years since I was at Harvard, and a fish rots from the head. It always starts there. And if you don't fix that, then there's nothing that can happen beneath that because the culture doesn't change and the leader's the only one that can do that, which is why I think the leader's first job is to create and, and sustain and lead that culture. If you protect the culture, then the culture works. Otherwise, you have something less than a sales culture. So the book is called Sales Management Simplified. You're sticking with this theme, aren't you? We got hey. new sales simplified. If it works, keep with it. Exactly. Yeah, it's great. It's a terrific book, Mike. Uh, I love it. We'll put a link here. We'll send people out to buy it. It's on shelves now, right? It is on shelves. And uh, yeah, we had a great a great run the first weekend on Amazon. Uh, we ran up to number one in the sales and selling management category. So I'm thankful for the support. And I'm, I'm hoping that we're going we're gonna to transform some organizations with this. My, my, one, my one request is that salespeople would buy this book. Not just for sales executives and, and, and sales managers, but salespeople that either aspire to lead in the future or if they really want to get a look at what does great sales management and a super healthy sales culture look like, grab this because it's going to give you – it might paint a picture for you that you don't have. And, and I'd love for you to get this book in the hands of the people leading your company too because I frankly think they need, they need to see it. I, I think it should be in every sales leader's hand, and it should definitely be in every first-line sales manager. The list of mistakes in the first half of the book, um, the first 16 chapters, are are pervasive, and they're everywhere. I mean, it's an epidemic, so the, that that's the first half. I'll, I'll pitch the book for just one more minute. Part two is how you fix it, and it is simplified. I love what you do. You break it down. There's uh, a number of chapters that just tell you step-by-step, what are you holding people accountable for? How do you have a one-on-one -on -one meeting? Why do you need to get into the field? How do you assess talent? All the things that you have to do to be a great sales manager, it's in the book. Thanks for being here, Mike. I so much appreciate you, Anthony. Thanks for the help and support, and I wish you well as we uh, go out and fight the good fight. That was my friend Mike Weinberg with Sales Management Simplified. You can find him at newsalescoach.com. I'm Anthony Anarino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. When you go there, do sign up for my Sunday newsletter, thesalesblog.com forward slash newsletter. And I look forward to seeing you back here next time in the arena.